0: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Adam Tooze to discuss World War II, Nazi ideology, the German war economy and the Holocaust. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and ACAST, and you can follow on Facebook and Twitter at PolTheoryOther. If you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Adam Tooze is Professor of History and the Director of the European Institute at Columbia University. He's the author of The Deluge, The Great War and the Remaking of Global Order. And in August, Penguin are publishing his new book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. And I'll be chatting with Adam about that book later in the year. Today I spoke to Adam about his earlier book, Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy. So, Adam, in in Wages of Destruction, one of the things that you write is that the war in the West was no less an ideological war than the war for Lebensraum in the East. Um, Obviously, that's a claim that on the face of it will sound very counterintuitive to people, considering that uh, the East was the centre of the Holocaust, the General Plan Ost and the Hunger Plan, uh, which would have facilitated the German colonisation of Eastern Europe and much of the Soviet Union. Um, and of course, whilst British and American soldiers were, were were sometimes quite poorly treated by the Germans, they, they weren't subject to starvation and mass murder, as, as was the case with the, the captured soldiers of the Red Army. Um, could you explain what you were getting at here by characterising the war in the West as being an ideological war?
1: Well, what I meant to say um, in stressing that the war in the West was no less an ideological war is, is not that the way in which the war was fought in the West was the same. Indeed, I'm part of a generation of uh, historians that grew up with a new appreciation for the violence of the Eastern Front and the entanglement between the way in which the war was fought in the East and the Holocaust. The the point I'm trying to make is that the the struggle in the West was ideological in the sense that for Hitler and key elements of the ideological apparatus of the Nazi regime um, really i think from the late 20s onwards but then with real intensity from 1938 onwards um, the west as in the united states uh, comes to be seen as the true center of uh, what they think of as the world jewish conspiracy um, it's in the united states um, that they believe that the heart of the center of the web of power um allies that that, that is their ultimate enemy um It's in Wall Street, it's in Hollywood, it's in Washington, D.C. And when they are struggling to make sense of what for them is a very puzzling thing, which is that Great Britain and the British Empire will not uh, um, come on side and not join Hitler uh, in the project of expansion in the East, Um, the answer that they arrive at is that this too is an effect of the influence of the... Of the Jewish, the world Jewish conspiracy, which anchors um, Churchill in the uni- in the UK and Roosevelt's uh, regime in the United States, and so though the means are different, the strategic rationale of the war um, in the uh, West is profoundly infused with not just sort of incidental ideological elements, but um, you know touches the real heart of the entire. Uh, Hitlerine, the distinctively Hitlerine anti-Semitic vision of anti-Semitism, which is which is this sort of grand strategic anti-Semitism, if you like, the idea that the entire global power structure must be understood through um, through his theory of uh, of a world Jewish conspiracy. And so, uh, what, what I'm arguing against is a, a very common line of interpretation that you see in the historiography, notably around people like Andreas Hillgruber. Uh, notable german conservative historian of the 60s 70s which is a sort of weighing up in which you know hitler has to fight a realistic war in the west to clear the space for an ideological war in the east he has to deal with britain he has to sort of cauterize the problem of grand strategy in the west so as to be able to get on with the war that actually matters to him and that i think cre- creates a bifurcation creates a dualism which is just completely false why do you think that that
0: interpretation persists, why do you think it is that the view of the war in the West is in some sense less important ideologically than the war in the East is so dominant? And and why do you think there's this almost total concentration on the the struggle in the East?
1: Well, I mean, part of the answer to that question is it didn't used to be common to centre the war on the Eastern Front. We're still, I think, going through a process of adjustment. I mean, if you'd asked me that question 25 years ago, it would have seemed very strange, right? We were still mm. in the process of readjusting our view so as to centre it on the East, and notably uh, in the anglosphere sphere, um, a kind of Churchillian vision of World War Two had become c- a commonplace, in which, you know, the centre of the struggle was really uh, West European. Uh, uh, the 1940 campaign, Battle of Britain, North Africa, Italy, D-Day. Were really the great sort of staging posts. Of course, something was going on in the east. No one ever forgot that you know the Germans bogged down in front of Moscow and were defeated at Stalingrad. But it, it, the balance of the narrative was squarely in the west, and overcoming that was the project of an entire generation of of scholarship, which to which my work is as is indebted as anyone's. Um, but uh, um, I mean, so that I think is the. That is a thing that you know. The background that you have to understand is that is that it is it's been a it's been a, a, a conscious effort on the part of many historians to actually recenter the narrative uh, in the East. And once you do that, and uh, if you if you look, say, at casualty figures, um, it's of course incredibly compelling to say um, uh, that the war was won in the East. Uh, over 80% of the casualties inflicted on the Wehrmacht were inflicted uh, uh, on the Eastern Front. Uh, And as our consciousness of the Holocaust has has intensified, um, which is a distinctly non-linear and kind of counterintuitive historical phenomenon with particularly in the UK, historical consciousness of the Holocaust really surging in the 1990s, um, that becomes even more compelling because then the moral drama, if you like, the heart of darkness, the real evil of the Nazi regime manifests itself uh, in the East as well. And these are all very important correctives to a previous view you know the sort of AGP, TV- AGP Taylor view of Hitler which hadn't really been able to distinguish him from any other German imperialist of the past. Um, so so um, for all of those reasons there has been a very serious and, and essentially important effort to to recenter the story in the East. But the result then creates its own types of, uh, of imbalance.
0: So one of the things you do in the book is you, you point out that when analysing Nazi Germany it's it's really crucial to see how ideology and uh, economic considerations are, are intertwined. Could you explain how that works with uh, with regard to, to the question of, of Lebensraum and uh, and the East? What's the economic logic at work that makes the securing of Lebensraum a, uh, a, a prerequisite for the eventual confrontation with America and Britain uh, in, in the minds of Hitler and, and other Nazi ideologues
1: so yes I mean just as I think of geopolitical and military calculation as being inextricably tied up with ideological considerations I think the same is true for when we begin to think about what you might call geoeconomics, economics um, the kind of political economy of the Nazi regime too and Hitler's vision of Lebensraum um, uh, is of course uh, centered on the east um, but it grows out of a of a geoeconomics, of a geopolitics of the late 19th century that was completely fascinated with uh, the great land grab uh, in North America, not just there, but also in Latin America too. And I conceived of Africa and Asia as being arenas for great land grabs. Hitler had a very vivid kind of historical imagination that was infused particularly by thinking about the great movements of people the so-called folk of and in the late stages of the roman empire this was something that really preoccupied him from his from his uh, youth as a as a keen student of history and all of that i think inflects his thinking about lebensraum in the 1920s and the 1930s and if you look particularly at what we call the second book so the collection of speeches that hitler was giving in the late 20s on the stump in the unsuccessful uh, sort of electoral campaigns of the late twenties, uh, what you see is a very illuminating linkage. Where where, where what uh, Hitler says is, you know, um, one of the things we have to realise is that the conception on the part of Europeans of what a good life is, what an adequate standard of living is, is now irrevocably shaped um, by Hollywood. It's irrevocably shaped by the images of affluence that are coming to Europe from the United States and what Europeans tend to forget are the material preconditions for that kind of affluence and those are living space, those are the incredible abundance of resources uh, that uh, the Western land grab, the European land grab in uh, North, uh, North America has opened up for for the people of the United States and so there is an absolutely direct entanglement in which uh, living space is not just a strategic uh, issue, living space is a political issue, it goes to the heart of what it means to be a successful, popular politician in Europe in the aftermath of World War I. That in turn is infused by the images of affluence that uh, America is projecting into the world, and what that necessitates then is a strategy of conquest, uh, which from Germany's point of view can only realistically be in the East. Um, and so that's the way in which I and a number of other historians of my generation have come to think of a kind of analogy, if you like, or a kind of dialectic in which um, Hitler's project of conquest in Eastern Europe is tied up with that earlier history of European expansion uh, in the 18th and 19th century and very particularly given the, the austro germanness of this, very particularly with the North American expansion. I mean, Another, you know, famous fact about Hitler is that his his favourite reading material were these um, pot boiling cowboy and Indian novels um, uh, by Karl May, which are still certainly when I was growing up in West Germany in the 1970s and 80s were still, you know, the common kind of the step up from Asterix and Tintin was to read Karl May, and they describe this. You know this drama of the westward movement and uh the wild west um so-called uh very vividly for that turn of the century generation of germans and austrian kids um so that was the kind of imaginary i think out of which this vision of Lebensraum came
0: do you think that because of the horrors of the of the holocaust and and the fact of it being just you know the most extraordinary um Case of 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 mass murder in in, in history uh, that there's uh, there's a resistance to seeing any sort of economic rationality to to what the Nazis were doing and and to even using terms like uh, like rationality and, and 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 logic.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think there is a is a deeply ingrained. Um, I think one would have to it's fair to say that it's a liberal kind of. Uh, framing uh, which insists that there's a sort of dichotomy between economic rationality and violence Um, and you know that can be attacked and has been attacked by radical thinkers um, ever since the the early modern period in the 18th century right that have always pointed out the way in which capitalist accumulation at all stages but notably of course in its primitive early stages uh, is directly tied up with violence Um, and then all the way down to the present day, you know, there've been insisting, insistent kind of arguments that racism um, is, in some sense, you know, economically irrational and will therefore be dealt a death blow by the market and so on. And um, in the case of the in the case of the, the the Holocaust, I'd say that the the impulses there are kind of contradictory. On the one hand, there's a there's a kind of image of the Holocaust as being technologically sophisticated. Uh, that Auschwitz was some kind of a, you know, the the cliché is it was a death factory, uh, you know that the railway system was somehow terribly sophisticated in delivering people to their deaths there. And on the other hand, there is a determined insistence that um, that bit of Nazi power, that bit of Nazi of the Nazi regime, was driven by a logic that had had no rationality. It was simply the. Uh, an outgrowth of a kind of murderous ideology that had no had no material foundation or any connection really to anything very much beyond uh, Hitler's as anti-semitism and if you start from the kind of premise that I do that That economics and grand strategy and ideology is interwoven uh, As I think they were in Hitler's case that that's that's always suspect um, It's also suspect on the other side in that, you know ascribing any kind of particularly uh, grand modernist qualities to the Holocaust, I think, is also completely misplaced. But what we do see um, are a series of logics notably to do with labor um, and food uh, which are directly entangled with, uh, with, uh, uh, with the Judeo side and beyond the Judeo side with the genocidal programs pursued by the Nazi regime uh, across Eastern Europe, in which a calculus of land, labor, and food dictates the killing of one population or another at different speeds at different moments um, in different places. Um, And if one's willing to think um, the logic of power and violence in that kind of way then then really the door is open I think to a uh, a quite compelling. I would never want to reduce it simply to a a logic of, of sort of economic necessity but the idea that these you know, these sort of uh, rationalities are completely other to each uh, to each other, that they are not in dialogue, I think is deeply apologetic. And it was, of course, also used, that argument was used by people like Albert Speer at Nuremberg to escape the death penalty. Um, I mean, his basic line of defense was, you know, I was living in a technocratic bubble. I never really dealt with the ideological side. I should have, and you know, mea culpa, and he makes a big deal out of his sort of dawning self-awareness of his responsibility. But in fact, if you look at the archival record, um, him and the likes of Speer were in direct conversation with the genocidaires, with the mass murderers, on a daily basis, um, because they were dealing with the same basic ingredients. They were dealing with food, they were dealing with land, and they were dealing with labor. Um, from 1942 onwards and so that um, that entire structure I think is profoundly that entire structure of thinking is profoundly misleading as a way into the history of the Third Reich Um, you know is there a necessity you know does capitalist logic or does economic logic necessarily lead to genocide well then you know I would run the argument the other way and say well absolutely not but there are certain configurations in which these two things could be made to fit together really very well, and the Nazi regime is fascinating and horrifying precisely because of the sort of flexibility of, uh, that it displayed in combining and recombining those elements.
0: So, to um, to go from the the question of, of economic rationality to to strategic rationality, although clearly those those two things are um, closely related. Um, To many people, the the decision that Hitler took, first to invade the Soviet Union and and then to declare war on the United States, uh, those decisions seem sort of inexplicable from a military perspective and... a counterfactual that's often put is that had Hitler been, uh, been less ideologically driven or, or less bent on, on world domination he could have mobilized Western Europe's productive capacity which Germany could draw on after the defeat of France in order to prepare Germany for a real confrontation with the Soviet Union and the Western powers at a later date um, why was the option of, of sitting tight uh, not available to, to them?
1: So the sense of, uh, the sense of, of urgency, uh, of impatience that uh, dominates the history of the Nazi regime has always been a puzzle to historians um, and to contemporaries, in fact. And uh, one of the really interesting contrasts is with Stalin, um, who displays almost precisely the opposite uh, characteristics, a kind of willingness to wait um, and to wait things out. Um, And people have offered a variety of different explanations for this, all the way down to the biographical, Joachim Fest and his uh, multi-volume biography of Hitler argued that Hitler was haunted by the sense of his own mortality increasingly. Um, But I would argue that, and I'm not going to deny that that's actually a key element, I do think in Hitler's philosophy of history there is a... An uncertainty uh, which makes it very different from the confidence of Stalinist Marxism, which knows that history is on its side fundamentally, whereas uh, hitler 's worldview is much more gnostic he he does not know whether or not um, there is you know going to be a good outcome. Uh, he knows that Germany has to struggle, and it 's his mission to lead the german nation ra- race nation in that struggle, but but he doesn't know, there's no guarantee that this is going to go well. So that is a source, I think, a deep ideological source of impatience. But there are very simple, very not simple, they're very straightforward economic and geopolitical military logics um, for the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Um, The first and the the simplest is that uh, Germany had defeated Russia once before in living memory. it's easily forgotten in the kind of cliched you know, uh, uh, tale that you know no one in their right mind invades Russia. Well, the Germans had invaded Russia and they'd beaten Russia and as a result had triggered the Russian Revolution in 1917. So the German, from the German point of view, defeating Russia looked much easier than defeating France. And what really turned their heads in the summer of 1940 was that they had achieved the miracle. And the miracle was not... Russia, but France. The fact that they'd been able to defeat the French army in a matter of weeks at really very low casualties, by the standards of World War One, totally changes their perception of of uh, of, of the of the ge- of the geopolitical of the military situation with this weapon they didn't really know they had this blitzkrieg. Uh, tank uh, tactical air power based weapon which they deployed in France in a rather accidental kind of haphazard fashion they now thought that they did in fact have a weapon with which to offer if you like a technical military solution to geostrategic, grand strategic problems and the grand strategic problem that they face in 1940 despite their conquests, is real because having conquered Western Europe doesn't really solve Germany's main Problems, which are not problems of um, industrial manufacturing but of raw materials and conquering Western Europe Uh, if you're going to maintain Western Europe at a high level of industrial production in fact makes your raw material problems worse because um, it's not self-sufficient the high level of productivity and output achieved in Western Europe over the course of the 19th century was crucially dependent on imports imports of uh, raw materials and imports of, of food crucially of animal fodder of high protein, high calorie uh, animal fodder to maintain the milk, dairy, meat farming that gave the Europeans their very high standard of living. And all of that is cut off uh, in 1940, except that you have the hitler stalin Pact of 1939, which provides you with crucial inputs from the Soviet Union. But if that is the way in which you run the argument, then of course what you face is the reality that from the autumn of 1940 into 1941, Germany, despite its victory in the West, is becoming increasingly dependent on the Soviet Union. Um, And so it then becomes, even from this kind of uh, logic, uh, very tempting to say, well, you know, if we know we can beat Russia, and we've just shown that with this new model Wehrmacht that we've got, we can crush France, which we were not able to do. Three times we failed to defeat France in World War I. We've just done it in a matter of weeks. Well, surely we can solve our problems by invading the Soviet Union and solving the problem there. Uh, they completely misjudge uh, the strength of Stalin's regime. They think it's probably weaker even than Tsarism, which they had successfully uh, defeated. Um, so that is how I think the political and military leadership of the Third Reich talk themselves into this idea that that ironically, the way out of their Western strategic impasse um, is the invasion of the Soviet Union. As hard as it is for us to fathom in retrospect, because we know how that war went, that's hindsight, Ahead of time, it looked as though defeating the Soviet Union was a convenient means to the end of escaping your geostrategic impasse in the West, which is that the German Navy and the German Air Force had, defeat, had failed to defeat Britain and not Britain out of the war. And if you had defeated the Soviet Union, perhaps you could, as it were, change the balance in the West and defeat the British. So that's, I think, why um, I would argue the invasion of the Soviet Union is is less irrational than it seems. When they, in fact, started to do the planning, it became obvious, I think, and should have been obvious even in advance, that Operation Barbarossa was one of the most irresponsible military operations ever devised, and the chances of its success were slim. and Though they had in fact defeated Russia in World War One, they'd done it salami-slicing style one campaign at a time over three years, which is not what the strategic planning of 1941 envisioned at all, that the Red Army was to be defeated in a matter of weeks within about 500 kilometers of the western border, so very unrealistic. Once they then get bogged down, their problem is in the east, and by the fall, by the late the late autumn of 1941 it's obvious that they are bogged down. The question then is how do you address your grand strategic situation and so then the question is how on earth does Hitler uh, launch himself into a war with the United States. It's Germany that declares war on the United States not the other way around. It would have been quite difficult for FDR to construct a, a reason to bring Germany into the war even after Pearl Harbor because obviously Germany wasn't the aggressor at Pearl Harbor. Um, and yet Hitler launches Germany into the war. And the, the argument, I think, is, is twofold, the, the, well threefold. The, 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 the first element is that America is in the war anyway. Uh, America is in the war anyway because of Lend-Lease, uh, agreed early in 1941 by Congress after, after FDR is re-elected, which basically provides Britain with a, a bottomless military economic backstop and that then is reinforced by the Atlantic Charter decisions of August 1941 which essentially commit America to assisting Britain in fighting this war to the end by all means necessary, all means short of actually entering the war itself. Why would the United States do that? This is the second element of the the logic. Well, the United States is doing this because it's the tool of the world Jewish conspiracy. So by not declaring war on the United States, what you're doing is allowing the world Jewish conspiracy to throttle Germany without Germany being able to really strike back. Um, And so declaring war is perceived as a kind of relief because it allows you to escape from this undeclared state in which only the other side is really fighting with the gloves off. And finally, you can unleash the U-boats and really wreak havoc on the east coast of the United States in 1942, which is what they do early on before the convoy system is put in place. And the third element of this is, okay, fine, if we're now actually committed to fighting a war against the United States, we've got a problem because we've got really no way of striking the United States other than U-boats. But who does have the means of striking the United States? Well, the number three naval power in the world, which Germany isn't, I mean, Germany is the number six naval power in the world after France and Italy. Um, The number three naval power in the world is Japan. And so what Japan brings to the table is, a very heavy-hitting, grand strategic navy, which it probably can't win the war against the United States with. It can humiliate Britain, destroy the Dutch and French empires, but not win the war against the United States. But it can draw the Americans out of the war and away from Europe to give Germany some breathing space to finish the war in the east. And so, um, and of course, again, thinking in terms of World War I analogies, Germany declares war on the United States effectively in 1917 by unleashing the U-boats. He doesn't get anything as a counterpart to that Um, In 1941 Hitler thinks himself lucky that he could declare war on the United States and bring Japan into the picture Which is going to open up an entire, you know, whole new front in the war Which will indeed distract uh, the British and the Americans from an invasion in Europe for a period of at least a year if not more so As contorted as this logic seems, this is why we think um, uh, that the decision is made in early December to do it. And in that conjunction, the relationship to the Holocaust is absolutely manifest. So uh, the the meetings at which Hitler really begins to outline to the Gauleiter and uh, Hans Frank uh, in the East that that the Holocaust is now for real and the extermination of Eastern European Jewry is on, is immediately after the decisions of War in the United States the Nazi party propaganda machine starts recycling the message of the 30th of January 1939 to the Reichstag, where Hitler had said you know if a world war should break out it will be the Jews of Europe that pay. Um, so there's a really very direct uh, sort of uh, imbrication there of the, the, the global vision of the war against Jewry and the decision to declare war on the United States.
0: Um, but presumably, they also develop uh, an overconfidence due to the, the very rapid defeat of, of France in 1940. Um, I wonder if you think they perhaps just weren't able to perceive how lucky they'd been during the French campaign, and that and, and they couldn't see that that was an operation that could have could have easily failed.
1: I, I think that's I think that's true that. Um, you know, the, the victory in France is one of the great puzzles of 20th century history. No one anticipates it in advance, including the Germans themselves, and it's very hard to rationalise anyone's actions ahead of time if anyone had anticipated the way that, that, that campaign would go. And then once you've achieved this stunning victory, I think you're right to say that, as it were, the, the, the victory then becomes the object of a kind of, uh, of a mythologization. Um, exactly what kind of a myth it is, I think is still something that historians you know we could we could still do to actually have a more comprehensive uh, history of precisely how not just the Germans but everyone else interpreted the shock of May 1940. Uh, because it cuts both ways, you know, you could say, well, the Germans will say, well, we've got the tanks now. But on the other hand, that kind of diminishes the hero- heroism and motivation of the German troops. So they don't actually really like that interpretation. They kind of want to insist on the inspiration and morale of the German soldier, his fighting qualities and so on. They go back and forth. It's of a kind of a rather strange, uncertain kind of a, Thing. But you're right that what it does is to say we've got, the, we've, got the, you know, we've got the silver bullet, we've got the magic solution here. We have the special source with which we can fix these problems. Um, and in practice, the fundamental thing is the space constraint. So the reason why the campaign in 1940 worked as well as it did, the fundamental reason it was possible for it to succeed was that it was within a very compact battlefield within which the encircling operations and the coordination between the armour and the infantry and the Luftwaffe was in fact possible. And as soon as you're operating on a a larger scale on the east, um, the inadequacy of German logistics, the inadequacy of the very partial mechanization of the German army, just becomes just becomes manifest. So an, uh, uh, an opponent fighting more competently than the British and the French did and with more resi- with more will and with more dogged resistance really can uh, repeatedly escape the encirclements that the Germans are putting up or at least to s- uh, pull enough of their troops out so as to maintain and to continue the fight and to force the Germans into not one but a whole series of separate uh, offensive bounds which they just can't sustain at, at pace. So yes, the 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 simplified crude ideological version of what happened in 1940 does become one of the one of the elements in the disastrous uh, planning for Barbarossa. To
0: to what extent was there a greater degree of realism within the Wehrmacht regarding Operation Barbarossa? Um, was the military hierarchy in agreement with Hitler about the prospects for success, or, or, or were there in fact a lot of unspoken doubts about the operation? There's
1: there's very Surprisingly few signs within the German military command, far fewer than there were in 1939, far less doubt over the winter of 40-41 about the invasion of the Soviet Union than there had been ahead of the invasion of France in 1940. I mean that's this really striking contrast. Ahead of the invasion of France, the doubts in the mind of people like Braukhish and Halder were so serious that Halder you know, was very seriously involved in coup planning uh, for the eventuality that Hitler tried to launch the invasion in the West as soon as the autumn of 1939, immediately after the Polish campaign. Uh, I think there's credit, there's good reason to believe that there would indeed have been a military coup if Hitler had attempted to do that. Nothing of the sort over the winter of 1940-41. So something has happened, um, because this is a far bigger problem which really ought to have, uh, you know, caused them to have much much greater doubt and I do think that 1940 turned people's heads when you see them really working on the logistics of the campaign uh, what you see is that they do again and again come up short they again and again can see that there's really serious problems um, with the just making the arithmetic of, uh, of the Barbarossa invasion plan work and what's striking is the way in which they resolve those problems which is to themselves become not just complicit, but in fact quite active drivers of the violent radicalization of German planning uh, for the occupation of the Soviet Union. So they don't just provide, make no provision for the feeding of Soviet prisoners of war because they're anti-Slav or racist or whatever. There's just no scope for the Germans to supply food to whatever prisoners of war they take. And their plan, if it succeeds, is going to take millions of prisoners. There's no scope in their plan to do that. So they don't make any provision. Um, what they do do is agree that large parts of the Wehrmacht, as soon as uh, the harvest time comes around, will be delegated to bringing in the harvest and securing it for Germany, uh, with consequences which will be mass starvation for the uh, the cities of the, of the Western Soviet Union. So again and again, what we see is the soldiers coming up against real problems uh, and then resolving them in a way which feeds into and, in a sense, uses Nazi ideology as a sort of disinhibiting mechanism. So, well now, you know, with these people in charge, we can in fact make this kind of assumption, Um, namely that we aren't simply not going to feed the prisoners of war or that we will indeed starve Kiev or we'll starve Minsk or we'll starve uh, uh, um, uh, Petrograd or uh, Leningrad, right? So the 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 two things work together uh, hand in glove.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or Euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash Other to sign up. Thanks for listening.